The following program is being brought to you on the Voice America Business Channel. For more information about our network and to check out additional show hosts and topics of interest, please visit voiceamericabusiness.com. The Voice America Talk Radio Network is the worldwide leader in live Internet talk radio. Visit voiceamerica.com. The views and ideas expressed on the following program are strictly those of the hosts or guests and do not necessarily reflect the views and ideas held by the Voice America Talk Radio Network, its staff, and management. As we constantly move forward, there is a continuing and urgent need for higher education. It's necessary for tomorrow's future and for a dynamically changing workforce. As the need for education is changing, so is education itself. Welcome to Big Beacon Radio, transforming higher education with your host, Dave Goldberg. In this program, we'll discuss the complex changes that are being made to higher education today, and we'll help you stay ahead of tomorrow. If you're a student, educator, or in the workforce. Now, here's Dave Goldberg. Good day and welcome to Big Beacon Radio, transforming higher education. I am Dave Goldberg and I'm your show host and Big Beacon is a movement to transform higher education at bigbeacon.org. In every episode, we explore some of the innovators and innovations that are changing the world of higher education all around us and you can follow live tweeting of the show at hashtag Big Beacon Radio. And this first segment is sponsored by the book that is transforming higher education, A Whole New Engineer, The Coming Revolution in Engineering Education at WholeNewEngineer.org. It's not just for engineers anymore. And today we're uh, uh, rejoined by uh, someone who's been on the show before, uh, Barb Oakley from uh, Oakland University. Welcome back to the show, uh, Barb. Oh, it's a pleasure to be here, Dave. Well, I always like having you. I enjoyed having you on the show before, and and uh, I don't know that you know this, but uh, that uh, episode is one of the certainly in the top ten. I think it might be in the top five of uh, of uh, overall uh, listenership in terms of people uh, listening to it at the time and and uh, downloading it. So I'm hopeful we're getting a big audience here for you today. Well, I think it's just because we make good synergy together in that we're both intensely interested in how can you make education better. Yes, well, and and uh, it's 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 actually really hard to know what makes a. I I haven't really figured out the secret sauce as to what it is that really gets our listeners' ears to perk up, but. But your show certainly did, and and you've been on the show before. And listeners can find out more about you on the program page if they don't re, if they didn't want if they didn't listen to the the last episode. But uh, before we get, we like to we like our listeners to know our guests. And so, uh, what one or two things would you like our listeners to know about you before we get started? Oh golly, um, I think probably one thing is that I teach the world's largest massive open online course with Terry Sanowski, the Francis Crick professor at the Salk Institute. And we have, well, almost, well, we have more than 1.5 million registered students so far. And they gather at about 10,000 more per week, week in, week out. So it's it's been a pretty extraordinary experience wow. just helping people to learn more effectively. And you, well, it's, and it must be hard to even um, correspond with them, with your students, uh, you know, with a million and a half, uh, you know, you, 
people start sending you emails and you start responding and and the remainder of the century is taking up taken up and responding to them but you must correspond with with uh, some of them what are, what are what are they thinking about what do they ask you about well sometimes uh, well with an email ju- that I just got it was I have Many more questions from taking your course. I thought that the best person to ask would be you. And I got so much out of it, and I'm sure I'd get more. And I I had to respond, well, gosh, you know, there's um, a million and a half others. <laughs> and I, yep. I can't really respond like this, but the forums are just great. Mm-hmm. And the discussion forums. And I, I've looked them over myself, and it's like, wow. I think my mentors and the fellow students in the class actually sometimes do a better job of answering questions that, than I can do. And it's, uh, it, but it is funny because I hear from people all over the world, and it's it's amazing how some of the things that we talk about in learning how to learn are simply not taught. In uh, it, I mean, you go through what. 14 to, or 12 to 16 years of education uh, and educational institutions, and you're never told how to learn effectively. And realistically, that's probably a good thing, because some of the ways that people are taught about how to learn are actually not in accordance with what we now know is most effective for helping people to learn. So it's it's a lot of fun just sharing with people, but it it is sort of like loving water and trying to drink from a fire hose at the same time. You have to be pretty astute after a while about how you place your focus just because otherwise you'd never get anything else done. Sure. And and so the the forums and the and I've I've always you know, there, there's lots of interesting things about MOOCs. Maybe the least interesting thing about MOOCs is the is the is the courseware, and the putting lectures online is a pretty obvious idea. The the million and a half people that's real interesting, and the fact that there's actually no way for an individual instructor to touch them, and that they have to help each other, um, and that the social aspects of MOOCs are real in- interesting to me, and and also the institutional. Uh, arrangements of MOOCs are very interesting to me in the sense that it's a different way of cutting across how we teach that so you're able to cooperate with a faculty member from um, uh, from San Diego and and uh, and that your two organizations uh, at least tolerate or are members of the same the the same organization so that you can cooperate in this way that those kinds of institutional, redrawing of the boundaries are in many ways as as interesting as the online teaching itself. Comment? Well, I think that it's funny because sometimes when I'm uh, giving talks, I will start by showing a picture of me shoveling snow, and that's me getting ready to go to work at my day job, and then I show a picture of Terry uh, out standing on the beach, getting ready to go for a run, and that's him taking a little break from his day job. And how could two such completely different people get together? And it's really due to the the great new avenues of online learning. But what I think is most important, though, is people often discount online learning because they say it's just not as good as face-to-face. And uh, there's... 
there's some truth to that. Uh, there, there are definitely times when face-to-face is better. But also, but another thing to keep in mind, though, is really that half of all um, teachers are below average in how they teach. So when you say face-to-face is better, it, oh, that's only true if you think of the very best. But if you think of the best of online teaching, sure. well, the proof is in the pudding. I mean, when you have one and a half million people just flocking in and flocking week after week, day right. after day, there's something right going on with this this class that I think can be helpful for many people, for teachers in general, and certainly for online learning. Yeah, and I, I mean, so... Um... I guess I wouldn't, you know, so I think that the, the, some of the debate sort of misses the point, uh, you know, learning, um, you know, learning is, is, you know, good learning is about what experience or what's happening in the learner. And mm-hmm. so great teaching, whether it's on a MOOC or in a classroom can bring about all kinds of great stuff inside of a student. Lousy learn, lousy teaching or lousy lecturing or lousy classroom behavior can 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 be pretty demotivating as well. So I mean that's that's really not the the dividing line, but I I, I think there's a I, I I agree. I think there's a lot of interest, you know, there's a lot more uh, about MOOCs and uh, online uh, learning that we need to know about i think the um you know from the perspective of this show we're we're as interested in the emotional response and the cultural response as anything we're not um we're sort of um for especially for being an engineer we're sort of technology neutral if the technology can can bring about good stuff, bad stuff, indifferent stuff, but it, but what's happening emotionally and culturally. And so if you've got a million and a half people online and they're kind of interacting with each other and inspiring each other and um, learning learning from the coursework and doing stuff, well, that's that's real interesting. And what is what is it that's emerging in response to the um, to the technology is the interesting are, are some of the interesting questions. I think that a lot of the debates about MOOCs and and uh, ed tech are just focused on the technology and sort of miss miss the interesting stuff almost completely. I think I couldn't agree more. I think that, I mean, think about your life. Sometimes someone will say one little sentence to you, and it completely reframes how you see everything and and how you react. And and even it can change what you want to do in your life just because of that one sentence. And MOOCs, uh, if you have a fabulous instructor, they can change people's lives because they yeah. can, just a few little uh, motivating or insightful ways of seeing things or sharing of passion can can be a great benefit. And it's not like it's everything, but sure. uh, it, it can, some people find it incredibly valuable. And so it's it's really a pleasure to be at the at a situation or a, a sort of a cultural nexus where we have these capabilities, for, especially for disadvantaged individuals who can't get access to good teaching uh, in other ways. Yeah. And, 
and I and last time on the show I asked you explicitly about um, unleashing experiences in your life, and of course you've had a pretty non-traditional path um, to becoming uh, an engineering professor and and now a teacher of a, a monster MOOC, but. Um, you know, in what way? So we're, but we still remain very interested in how people. And you actually just alluded to this. Some sometimes a stray remark, uh, an assertion, an assessment, a uh, question can, uh, an insight can change our lives. And so, in what ways have? I'm just curious if since the last time we talked uh, earlier this year, uh, in what ways have either you been? even more unleashed from your already unleashed self or in what ways have, have you helped other, your students or, or others unleash in a, in a way that um, you noticed? Well, one thing is the, the MOOC itself is about three hours of videos. So in those three hours of videos, we've managed to somehow uh, reach people in a way that we now have teams of people in almost two dozen different languages, and some of the teams have yep. fifty translators uh, who who are translating the course into their language. Uh, everything from Akan in uh, in Ghana to uh, to Danish to uh, Bengali all of these languages all over the world, and people are so excited about how these ideas are really helpful, not only to them personally, but how they want to share them within their culture and their country, that it's it's really pretty amazing. I mean, sometimes I'm just like, golly, how did I ever end up helping to um, spearhead such a major movement in learning? But it, at the same time, it's really exciting, and I think it's it's because people see that a lot of these ideas about learning are really very simple, they, and, and they're very solidly based on science, and they're incredibly practically useful, and so sure. they, they want to share. They, they really allow them to become unleashed. Yeah. Nice. Beautiful. And um, since we last talked, what's... Uh What's new for you uh, personally to get, that our listeners should hear about? Well, I, I think the big thing for me is I've uh, finished the book I've been working on, which is called Mind Shift. And actually, the uh, the subtitle has changed. I just got the new cover from my, my publisher about 20 minutes ago. And uh, it's the subtitle is Breakthrough Obstacles to Learning and Discover mm. Your Hidden Potential. So they've tweaked it just a little bit, but it's uh, Mind Shift is the, the central title. And I've been working on it for about the last year and a half and traveling all over the world to bring stories as well as scientific insights about how people overcome challenges in, in their ability to broaden their passion for learning, not just follow it, but what if an obstacle arises? What if it's something you don't want to do, or it's really difficult for you? How do you pursue learning in that kind of situation? And that's what the book's all about, and so I'm so glad to get the uh, the manuscript turned in, and uh, that's been my my uh, sort of unleashed. Now I'm I'm relaxing, and actually I'm taking a couple of MOOCs. 
so I'm really enjoying that. <laughs> okay, so that's that's a that's so a, a MOOC instructor takes MOOCs to to relax. Good, and um, <laughs> yeah. So and I think we've covered a lot of this. But uh, anything else in the, the new in the world of you know, learning something surprising? Uh, you know, you're you're always looking for new ideas and learning and and new science and new. Um, um, new stories to tell anything um anything new out there that say since last time we were talking i think we'll spend we'll spend some time in the second segment on your book but i'm just curious if there's some things that you've kind of come across that like to talk about well i think probably the thing that i've found most surprising is just this idea of when you have the video games can be very helpful <laughs> in increasing your ability to pay attention, to shift your gears when you need to, when you're uh, learning something. Even when you're out driving on a road and a deer pops out, the video games can be very helpful in improving your abilities in all of these areas. And it's not um, every kind of video game that does it. It's more like... Uh, Medal of Honor, and these kinds of active games. Now, games like Tetris, on the other hand, can improve your spatial abilities. So, uh, in any case, uh, I, I've been very surprised, pleasantly surprised, at how video games can be incredibly helpful in learning. Well, I imagine it's, uh, there's a, you know, some of the, you know, in, 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 in some of the things that are in your MOOC, you know, the, so changing things up, so being um, uh, focused and then diffuse for a while. So anything to some excess, if you're doing video games 24-7, that's probably not a good thing. But but what you're saying is that some some amount of video game contact can can improve um, ability to of, of different kinds of learning is what I'm hearing. That's exactly right. Uh, yeah. And when you mentioned that sort of going between focused, which is intently um, putting your attention on something, versus yeah. diffuse, which is like going out for a walk or taking a shower and you're not concentrating on anything particular, I'm just reading uh, Josh Whiteskin's The Art of Learning. And one of the things he talks about that he eventually found was very important in his ability to succeed competitively, whether at yes. chess or at Tai Chi, uh, he was he was the the boy who the book Searching for Bobby Fisher was written about, and so uh, he. But what he found is that if it, that if he took care to do some relaxation. He had actually, he looked back over his notes and he found that if he focused on anything for more than about 14 minutes, he would go off track. He wouldn't be able to do as well. And what I find interesting about that is that 15-minute thing is about what I do when I'm teaching a class. I'll talk for maybe 15 minutes, and then I'll come up with some kind of gimmick where we do something active or some little break so that their their minds can take a, a, a little bit of an oblique, diffuse yep. look at the material. Yeah, yeah, yeah. 
Why don't we, and actually, speaking of break, why don't we take a little bit of a break, and then uh, after the break, uh, why don't we come back and talk a little bit about your new, uh, new book to the extent that uh, your publisher will let you. So uh, this is Big Beacon <laughs> okay. Radio with our special guest, Barb Oakley, uh, um, uh, from Oakland University. Stay, stay with us in the next uh, segment. We're going to talk about her new book, Mind Shift. Become our friend on Facebook. Post your thoughts about our shows and network on our timeline. Visit Facebook.com forward slash Voice America. Do you want greater success in bringing change to your university, college, department, or classroom? Are you looking for a keynote speaker to inspire your organization with stories of transformative change? Would you like to boost your own academic, business, or technical career? Let David E. Goldberg of 3Joy Associates help. David is a leading speaker, author, trainer, and leadership coach with experience in helping bring successful change to educational organizations and education and technical careers around the globe. To learn more, call Dave Goldberg at 217-621-2645. Contact him at deg at 3joy.com or browse the 3Joy website, www.3joy.com today. We're always talking business. Talk to an expert. Call now, toll free, 866-472-5790. That's 866-472-5790. Voice America Business Network. You are listening to Big Beacon Radio. If you'd like to call into the program today, please call one 866 472 5790. Again, that's 1-866-472-5790. Or send an email to deg at bigbeacon.org. Now, back to this week's show. And welcome back to Big Beacon Radio. Uh, the second segment is sponsored by 3Joy Associates. Get the training, coaching, and change leadership consultation services that will help transform your school or organization at 3Joy Dot com and before the break we were talking with our our guest uh, Barb Oakley the um, co-teacher of the biggest MOOC on the planet um, learning how to learn and and uh, in this segment we want to talk Barb about your um, your new book uh, Mind Shift uh, as you just said you're finishing it up uh, I have the old subtitle in my my notes here but uh, it sounds fascinating what's the book about and and what motivated you to write it. Well, the, the book is about learning new things when you're a little older, when you might have other obstacles, like you have a full, uh, full-time full job and you're trying to, uh, you're afraid you might get fired, or you're just interested in learning something new, but you've got these, you've never had anything to do with, for example, coding before, or, or learning a language, or it, there's... We're often told in our lives to follow your passion. But what happens when you, you get older and you realize that maybe following your passion isn't everything you want to do? And in fact, it might have put you in a little bit of a career box because mm-hmm. there's not many job opportunities uh, related to your passion. What do you do then? So these are all the kinds of things that, that I talk about in Mind Shift. And it's a lot of fun because in doing the book, 
I was able to travel all over the world and get insights from from people who are often learners in learning how to learn. But there's, uh, I think there's a lot of information that people can find helpful because it, it's, I think it's more common for people to, uh, to have to learn something that they're unfamiliar with or maybe even uncomfortable with than it is for them to just be learning something that's really easy for them. So this is, this is a book about uh, the, the latter, about learning things. It might be a little more difficult, but it's told with story and yeah. also uh, along with a, a little bit of uh, good scientific insight. So I think between the two of them, it kind of makes it uh, very interesting to, to read. Well, and this this is a topic near and dear to the show. We've had any number of um, oh, we've had Carrie Hannon on the show, who's all about late life careers. We've had a bunch of different uh, leadership and life coaches on the show who are also oftentimes working with people as they make transitions late career, trying to make a shift and from something. Um, that for whatever reason was something that they enjoyed doing at one point, but now they want to do something else and making those changes can be, uh, can, can be, uh, quite challenging. Your, your first chapter tells the story of, for example, of a musician who becomes a medical doctor, a physician, and, and some of the challenges he, he faced. You, you've had any number of non-traditional shifts in your career. We were just talking off air about, my own shift from being an engineer and engineering professor to becoming a, a leadership coach and and um, an organizational consultant. Um, what is it about these kinds of career shifts late in life that makes them challenging, interesting, worthy of well, worthy of a of a whole book? Well, I think it's just so common. Okay, and the, I mean, people they. They'll go right up. They've had they have this maybe wonderful career as an event planner, say, and then all of a sudden their job is gone, and they've been doing their job for fifteen years. Now, now what do they do? It, it can be very frightening if you've uh, if you've never if you haven't switched for years, you don't really realize. Uh, how do you even begin thinking about how to switch careers? And then sometimes earlier on or even mid-career, people do, don't, they sort of get in with the flow, with what everybody else is doing around them, and they don't think about what can, what can happen in their careers. So, for example, in the book I talk about my, my co-instructor, Terry Sanowski, and for him as a young man... He loved physics, and so he ended up at Princeton working uh, as a grad student with John Wheeler, who was one of the biggest figures in relativity theory. So, I mean, it does not get any better than that. And Terry was with a bunch of uh, fellow students, grad students, who were all at the the top of the world, uh, all doing physics, and yet Terry looked around and said, you know, there is a big problem here. I am not going to stay in doing this. And the problem, as he began to, to figure out, was if you want to make any advances in particle theory or relativity, you have to have equipment that is 
enormously expensive. I mean, soon it will cost the budget of the United States sure. to build the kinds of equipment needed to study what you need to study in order to make advances. And uh, so Terry just said, I'm not going there. I, I'm, you know what? I'm interested in neuroscience. And it looks like there's some potential there. And so while everyone else was sort of, or many were, were sort of in this lemming-like rush of, hey, physics is the top of the world. I'm going to uh, make my career in that. He jumped off quite early and switched into neuroscience. And then later, his much later, his colleagues, after they'd invested so much in getting this that knowledge in physics, they found themselves having to retrain for other careers because of the very roadblocks that Terry had figured out much earlier. And it, I think it's like that for a number of careers. We, we, again, we are told, follow your passion. And so what that means is people don't look discerningly at what's what's going on in the real world and so they just if it feels good do it and then they end up um sort of trapped with the others who've also followed their passion into a career that can sometimes be a dead end yeah well so in you know there there's following your passion and then there's you know so the some and then some people go into um jobs that pay well but for which they have no particular interest or affinity, and so there's, I mean, there are various, there are probably there are various polarities here. There's a, you know, so you can, I can go off and do something where I can be materially successful, or I can go off and do something that is strictly about the things that I enjoy. What and um, your example in the book of the musician, he he enjoyed that for a while, but it was not as fulfilling as he thought it was going to be, and and uh, he found greater meaning and purpose in serving people as a as a as a medical doctor and and all kinds of transitions that people go through um, have elements of this. I mean, so you know, there's no there's no imprinting on you know there's it's not like uh, like on your computer where it says uh, about you know you can click on the Mac or the PC and it says about and it tells you all the specs of the machine under the hood. There's nothing like that on a human being where it says, well, yeah, you're about uh, music and uh, and medicine and uh, not physics and it, it, whatever. There's nothing like that inside of a human being. We've got to go find that stuff ourselves. And and following your passion, even though it's not it's not awful advice, it's it's hard to do because there's a lot of other constraints that you're balancing at the same time. That's right. And I think one thing that we do is also what comes easiest for us. Mm. We tend to think that must be our passion, right, because we're good at it. But what people sometimes don't realize is that that if something comes more in a more difficult way for you than, say, for other people, oftentimes that means you're learning it using perhaps sort of a different set of of uh, neural underpinnings, and because it's different, that can help you to be more creative in what you're learning. Hmm. Yeah, and actually, some of the chapters of your book point in that uh, direction. So I think it's um, a couple. Anyway, the number of the titles of the chapters uh, intrigue me. Uh, the, the chapter three, changing cultures. What's that about? <laughs> 
Well, it's a little bit like this. If you if you were born as a Comanche in the 1700s, so you were Comanche uh, uh, Native American in the uh, in the on the Texas Plains, you would have been most likely an absolute master of horsemanship. So you, you'd be able to, to do things that were almost like magic on a horse. And the, the Comanches, as it turns out, were, were just almost like horse geniuses. And they, there was this culture where being a horse whisperer, so to speak, was, was something that was incredibly valuable. And, well, now today, <laughs> nobody, very few people know about horses. And it's certainly not, I mean, for the Comanches, it was a big career boost, boost to be able to, uh, to do the things they did on, horse, uh, on yes. horseback. But now there's a completely different set of what is deemed to be viable for a, a career path or, or mm. what can make things workable for you uh, in your life and career today as opposed to in the 1700s. And that, that shift, you can follow the shift moving along and it, it, the horses switch to cars and, the, and then to computers. It, and there's, there's switches in culture of what, what we learn and what people think are, are valuable. So I think part of what that means is that sometimes people who are uh, language, they're, they're really good at language. There were times in the past where that could be a, an intensely valuable uh, sort of set of characteristics to have. But nowadays, I think it can be very valuable to have a, a good uh, a, a good capability with language, but it's also intensely valuable to have good abilities with math and science and technology. And uh, sometimes I think we do our disservice a disservice to our students. For example, I think it's Wayne State has just said, "Hey, look, you don't have to take a math course at all," and. Yet we know that uh, having a rudimentary understanding of mathematics can make an enormous difference in your ability to uh, even not suffer default from your mortgage. So, uh, so there's cultural changes, and I think the most important one nowadays is that it's important for people to be able to handle math and science and technology, and yet often how we teach it uh, is antithetical to being able to excel in those disciplines. And so that's that's part of the, the challenge I think we've faced in the West is um, uh, an emphasis on the wrong things in learning math and science that turns people off of those subjects and yeah. makes it so that it's more difficult for them. Yeah, we need more uh, Python whispers than uh, horse whispers. Yeah, what? So, chapter four: Your useless past can be an advantage. Slipping through back doors to a new career. What's a career back door? A career back door is when you've uh, mastered something or you're pretty good at something, and you think, "Gosh, I will never use this. It's totally worthless in my life." And it's a, a way of framing things that can make you kind of depressed. But for me, for example, 
I, uh, I grew up and I thought I couldn't do math and science. I, I hated them. And so I flunked my way through elementary, middle, and high school math and science. And all I wanted to do, I figured, well, if I can't do those, I want to try and learn another language. So I enlisted in the Army and learned Russian. And then to my chagrin, when, I, when it came time for me to get out of the Army when I was age 26, I found that Russian is not a very popular um, skill to have in the workplace. So, uh, so I thought, well, you, I've wasted all these years learning Russian. I mean, it's not really gotten me anything. And it, actually, that, that was completely untrue because learning Russian gave me very good insight into how you learn something that's quite difficult. I mean, it was for me. And the, the patterns, sort of the meta cognition about how good learning takes place, how practice and repetition and using the ideas in different contexts, all of those help me so that I, when I decide, well, I am going to try to learn math and science, I could be successful from bringing the, the, the very skills that I had learned in something that I thought was completely useless. So I tell a story in the book of a woman who is, uh, she was a, uh, an online gamer. Yeah, I mean, that seems so totally worthless. Uh, but it's not. It's actually, it gave her some really awesome skills. And the university she worked at uh, finally realized that, and so her seemingly useless past uh, became something that was very, very useful for her. Well, and this this uh, this useless to useful. Um, I mean, a big part of um, a big part of a coach's job is to sit and listen and ask questions around story framings, and to see if there aren't ways to reframe, you know, take a story. So the stories have certain facts in them and they have also certain uh, assessments or interpretations of those facts. In fact, stories are, they're fairly, uh, they're data poor. They have a fairly small number of facts, but a large number of opinions and interpretations in them. And so there's a lot of wiggle room to change a story that's not working for you into a story that's reframed in a way that does work for you. And it seems that that's a central, that's a central theme in coaching work and helping people see that and, and to get them to change the story from this thing is useless to no, this thing's really actually very useful. And is my, is, I love your, the, this is my back door is a changing of a story. That's, uh, that's right. Well, sometimes, for example, if I'm on an advisory board, and you wonder, what do people do on advisory boards? They're not like in the real thick of things. And yeah. so how can they truly lend advice? And it's when you have someone on an advisory board who really knows like maybe a completely different subject or they have experience in something that is... You never would have thought it's relevant, but it is totally relevant. They may just sit and listen and listen, and then during the whole board meeting, they might say one thing, just one thing. But that one thing can pivot 
some yeah. uh, some major initiatives to change the whole direction of of whatever the group is moving towards. So I I think sometimes it's like that in our lives. Uh, we, for example, for you with coaching, coaching, you listen and listen and say one thing, and it can allow someone to pivot and rethink what they're doing. They may be aware of things, but it can help them, I think, to yeah. to um, suddenly understand um, what's going on in a way that they didn't before. Yeah, beautiful. Let's let's take another break, and I want to just continue with the book a little bit more and then talk about um, – Try to get really practical and 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 think about uh, the ways in which the things that you're doing in your MOOC and in your in your writing, how these things can be helpful today and in helping bring about the kind of transformation we need in in uh, higher ed. This is Big Beacon Radio um, with our special guest Barb Oakley. Uh, in the next segment, we're going to talk a little bit more about mind shift and then talk about the ways in which these ideas can help bring about the kind of transformation we need. From the boardroom to you, Voice America Business Network. Do you want greater success in bringing change to your university, college, department, or classroom? Are you looking for a keynote speaker to inspire your organization with stories of transformative change? Would you like to boost your own academic, business, or technical career? Let David E. Goldberg of 3Joy Associates help. David is a leading speaker, author, trainer, and leadership coach with experience in helping bring successful change to educational organizations and education and technical careers around the globe. To learn more, call Dave Goldberg at 217-621-2645. Contact him at deg at 3joy.com or browse the 3Joy website, www.3joy.com today. We're making it easier to listen to the Voice America Talk Radio Network live wherever you go on iPhone, BlackBerry, or Android. Download it from the Apple iTunes App Store, BlackBerry App World, or Android Market. You are listening to Big Beacon Radio. If you'd like to call into the program today, please call 1-866-472-472. 5790. Again, that's 1-866-472-5790. Or send an email to deg at bigbeacon.org. Now, back to this week's show. And welcome back to Big Beacon Radio. And our final segment is sponsored by Big Beacon and Big Beacon Radio. Advertise on this show and reach some of the most committed reformers and transformers in education today. Write to me, Dave Goldberg, at deg at bigbeacon.org to reach your audience today. So we're rejoined in the final segment by Barb Oakley at, uh, from Oakland University. And um, we were talking about um, your new book, Barb. And and uh, there's a chat. I just want to, there's a chapter in there about Singapore. I, when I left the University of Illinois, I spent a fair amount of time in Singapore and I I love Singapore, and I've got a lot of friends there. And so you hold it up in one of the chapters in your book as a future-ready nation. How so? Singapore is a very interesting place. And I think part of it is, for us as educators, we often go, it's all about the student. 
I mean, it's student-centered learning is where, where the real learning takes place. And I think it's valuable for us to also think about that from a sort of a greater um, social perspective, that it, it's all about the individual and, and in, empowering the individual, which also means that if they're the boss and they're the driver of themselves, it, it also means giving them some... Uh, some responsibility for the risk that they assume in their lives uh, as being responsible for their own lives. And so I think what Singapore has done that I find, I've found very engaging is that they, they encourage self-responsibility uh, in people. For example, they will, they have a program where you can go and learn whatever you want. You can get 500 bucks, which doesn't sound like much, but it actually is quite a bit um, related to uh, how things are operated in Singapore. And you can, you can use that money to study whatever you want to study. So you don't have to uh, just learn whatever your company uh, will pay you to to study. You can learn whatever you would like to study, and I think it's because Singapore has begun to realize that um, that it isn't necessarily the case that just uh, learning how to code better or learning something to do with business. I mean, those are really great things, and if that's something that you want to do yourself, then then by all means. But also, if you want to take art or or photography or uh, something about how to how to do counseling better, that that is also very worthwhile. It's what's coming from within you, and in fact, just that sort of learning um, lifestyle is what's very important. That 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 will help you to maintain a freshness in whatever you're doing in your life. And I, and I, I think that that helps. That's, that whole approach is one of the things I really admire about Singapore. Yeah, and that's it. So the, I think you're talking about their, their fairly new uh, Skills Future um, Future uh, program yeah. where they, um, they, ha- they hand out this money. I, I find Singapore to be uh, just an interesting um, um, uh, well, I, and I and I and I and I and I love and I love Singapore, and I I've enjoyed my time there. And but I also find some of the uh, some of the contradictions just delicious. Um, so you have, um, uh, for example, I was at the National University of Singapore, and they have this brand new campus with three new liberal arts colleges on it um, uh, called Utown, and there are all over the campus. There were these. Um, um, signs with healthy looking bright looking young people expressing themselves we are the future we are innovative the 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 one of the biggest buildings in that utown has the acronym create on it and so there's this aspiration for innovation and creativity to beat the band in a culture that is maybe the most tightly planned culture on the planet so there's this this contradiction between uh, very tightly planned, uh, very well planned. I might add, uh, it, uh, if if more nations had planning like this, we'd have we'd have more of it. But um, 
but also this contradiction between sort of planning and the freedom and autonomy that are not out, that are that are sort of constitutive of of innovation and creativity. So I. I I find it, and then you, and and that on the other hand, you have uh, Singapore with this very high academic achievement, as high as Finland, but Finland achieves it in a completely different and much more free and easy kind of way um, than Singapore that does it with uh, uh, severe testing and tracking and things like that. So I just find it to be kind of a, not arguing with you, but I just find it to be kind of an intriguing place when it comes to innovation and learning and, and things like that. Comment? Well, I, I I agree, and I think that's part of why I find Singapore so intriguing. Part of the issue for me, since, uh, I mean, I used to work for the Soviets as a Russian translator on Soviet trawlers. That was back in the early 1980s. Yep. And so I know communist societies very well. Um, and they, if you think Singapore is tightly controlled, <laughs> it doesn't hold a candle to uh, the good old Soviet Union or uh, or. Uh, even yeah. in many ways, um, there there are a number of societies that are far more tightly controlled. And I think, though, that what's interesting about Singapore is they they are controlled, but they're much more open in many ways. There there are definitely uh, Singaporeans who think in an open, uh, openly critical fashion about yes. the the country in ways that don't happen in other. <laughs> Uh, in more rigidly controlled societies, sure. But uh, I, I find it interesting. I think precisely because of that dichotomy, uh, how one of the things I talk about in the book is my sense is that it may be that the rigid testing system that is often seen in many Asian countries may, in some sense select against individuals who are more creative. Yeah. It, it, it helps them wash out. And I'm, I know that some of the things that we want to talk about on this show relate to how do we improve education. And I, I think we always run up on the sharp, double-edged sword of you want to have school systems that have creativity and have autonomy. At the same time, if you don't have a way of seeing how well students do, yeah. you you run the risk of uh, rogue school systems. And I, I, I've worked in some of them. I, I've volunteered. Uh, you have rogue school systems that that are, are where you have kids who are fifth graders who've never who don't know how to do basic. Addition. They can't add five plus nine, yep. and so how how do you sort of square that circle of of autonomy in school systems, including universities, without yes. some kind of accountability? Oh, absolutely, and I, I think that's I, I think that's one of the you know. So when people read uh, whole new engineer, some people say, "Well, we want." 
those guys want to create fluffy engineers that don't know how to do a calculus problem or build a bridge. And if the, they build a bridge, it falls down, which is nothing could be further from the truth. And and I think this con- the concept of polarity management is the is the really helpful one here. There there are these opposites, and they kind of need each other. So autonomy is great, but autonomy run wild is just that. It's not. It's it. It has no discipline. It doesn't get the job done. And so, how do we, how do we get the good parts of autonomy? And how do we get the good parts of control? And what do those look like? And then, how do we manage things differently? Right, right now, we oftentimes in a controlling system, we think of more autonomy as a solution to the problem of too much control. But we still need to kind of have that control in there. So we're not thinking, we're not thinking clearly about the the. The different the differences that are important and the things that we need in a complex way we tend to think too simplistically about our our solutions and that's that's one of the reasons we're such a big fans of uh, Barry Johnson's polarity management kind of thinking. Ah, uh, well, I think as you discussed uh, in, in a whole new engineer, what Olin is doing um, as far as trying to completely. Yes revamp engineering education, uh, part of it, when, when you are able to carefully select the individuals that you have, you know, like the students, you can do stellar things. But what if you can't carefully select? For, uh, I just read um, Laszlo Bach's book on uh, HR management at Google, and he talked about the wonderful HR uh, the human resources management that they've got and how they they give the people at Google this enormous uh, sort of self-capability and ability to drive the direction that they want to go in. And, and they really trust their workers. And But then he also said, like, right from the very beginning, I mean, it's like three times harder to get into Google than it is to get into Harvard. So... The selection process, it's incredible. And then they give all this trust, and they're saying, well, why isn't everybody as trusting as we are? And uh, it, it's it's a contradiction in terms. If if you have a very open, you, you have to be more careful about who you trust because uh, you're going to have people who are going to game the system. And that's, that's as likely as in, in education as, as it is in business. Yeah, I think that's an interesting question to the extent that, um, yeah, so, I mean, there are, I I think it's more complex than that. I think that uh, uh, there there are deeper questions about motivation and, I mean, you can have very, um, uh, you can select for all kinds of things and and then just kind of, just, uh, just trusting doesn't that um, or, or trusting or not trusting or you know, in many ways um, uh, many of the the kinds of things that have worked in the in um, the inner city have been about trust and have been about belief in in young people. Um, you ma- mentioned Carol Dweck. Uh, some of her work has been with people that were disadvantaged and and it still depended on. Um, on trust, I, Barb. We're I, I realize we're just kind of coming to the end of the show here, and I'd love to go on. Maybe we can get you back on the show. Your stuff is so interesting, and and we just love what you do. How can um, 
how can listeners find out more about you, your your MOOCs, and, and your your books? Oh, if they just go to my website, which is www.barbaraoakley.com, they will find all sorts of information about uh, the, the MOOC, uh, Learning How to Learn, and I'm working on three new MOOCs to create a specialization, and also about the new book, MindShift, and the last book, which is The Mind for Numbers. That was a New York Times science bestseller. So just go to barbaraoakley.com, and there's all sorts of information uh, right there for you. Great. Thanks so much for being on the show, Barb. Uh, it's my pleasure. You've been listening to Big Beacon Radio, Transforming Higher Education. Special thanks to our guest, Barb Oakley. Help transform higher education. Join the movement to unleash a new generation of innovators by learning more at bigbeacon.org. Join us next week, same time, same channel, as we continue our quest to transform higher education. Thank you for tuning in to Big Beacon Radio, transforming higher education. Please join Dave Goldberg soon for another edition. Listen every Monday at 1 p.m. Eastern Time, 10 a.m. Pacific Time on the Voice America Business Channel. For additional information about our programs or to find out about the next show, please visit bigbeacon.org. We'll talk again very soon.